It's Robert M. Price with the Tea Time Bible Geek. Uh, let's uh, thank our producers at Mythicist Milwaukee, especially Jason, who puts a lot of work into this. And uh, Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe it's so easy for him. It's a mere bag of shells. But at any rate, I sure appreciate his, um, his valiant efforts and the great results. At least I assume they're great. I don't happen to listen to the Bible geek. I just, you know, so, but I know, knowing his work, it's great. Okay, uh, how about uh, some of those questions? Because I got about 46 pages of them to get through. First one from Julian the Agnostate. There's a new good word. Uh, as a newbie to your podcast, I have a small bio to share and a question. Please bear with. Now, you remember, folks, I encourage people to send in their uh, their stories. And so um, I, I think it's uh, always interesting to folks who have made a journey to hear from others who have made a similar one. He says, "I oops, uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm from the north of England. Can you put your best foot forward for a Geordie and or Manchester accent? Or would it just sound Cockney? I have no idea, so I'm just going with my uh, uh, low-class English accent. Uh, living in Canada, who's gone through a huge journey from the agnosticism of my upbringing via Catholicism, Protestantism, Orthodoxy, and now just drifting around a sort of agnostic, deist, Zoroastrian, henotheistic paganism. It's complicated. I spent a long time around some dear friends who were Catholic friars and priests learning so much, but ultimately concluding that the basis of the faith isn't strong enough to hold me to it. I have struggled greatly with the meaning and existence of Jesus, and have taken in everyone from Craig and Habermas to Carrier, Ehrman, et al. But I find your views, and especially your presentation style, O oh great Heston McMahon the second, to be the most compelling of all. Thank you so much for giving me permission, in quotes, to be agnostic as to the Christian foundation texts, and not to have to be a mythicist zealot or a fundamentalist fanatic. I just found your podcast last week and I'm completely addicted. Oh, good, good, good. Thank you. I've not read any of your books yet, so I apologize if I make daft or obvious inquiries. That's okay. I've got plenty of daft answers. My question is about the textual transmission of the New Testament stories. You contend that scribal errors during the copy and process must have rendered many alien things into the text, to the extent that we have problems discerning what it originally said, but I'm not clear on the practice reality of how this happened. For example, how could a copyist seeing a body of text in the center and notes in the margins possibly confuse the two and combine them in his own copy? Would such things not be clearly delineated in ancient manuscripts? Uh, well, good question. Um, I don't necessarily attribute a, a whole lot of uh, textual corruption to that. But I also uh, don't think that we have to be uh, completely agnostic as to the state of the text. It's just that there are a number of places where uh, 
it looks to me as if somebody has sandwiched something in because it interrupts the flow of the argument or whatever in, a, in an arbitrary way, uh, or suddenly the vocabulary is, is different and, and stuff like that. And uh, my guess is that, uh, that, as with many people like the great William O. Walker Jr., that uh, this means that somebody has interpolated the text before any of the manuscript evidence we have that survives, and there was certainly time for that. I mean, textual critics uh, are the ones who tell us that the um, that when we trace back through the manuscripts we do have, it gets sloppier the further back you go. They get more careful later. You know, we kind of wish it were the other way around. But um, in fact, I tend to think that uh, a lot of that has happened but that there are clues in the text. It's not impossible to to tell, though these things have to remain a surmise. But the particular uh, style of, of error that you're mentioning, that isn't that tough to figure. There are a few notable uh, examples of that where um, – Sometimes we do have uh, manuscript evidence that hints very strongly at it, where, uh, like in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, there's a bit about um, whether, uh, oh, let's see, uh, should I read, well, about whether women can speak aloud in church, and in different manuscripts, this particular little uh, snippet occurs in one place in the chapter and in others in another place a little further down the page. Uh, that kind of implies that somebody found this in the margin, and they had, or let me just give you one other example, in the story in the Gospel of John, where Jesus uh, confronts this guy who it has been waiting in the pool of Bethsaida for years uh, to be healed. He's crippled, and, uh, the, and, and he says that uh, he can never get to the healing water fast enough because he's crippled, right? I uh, can't drag himself to it. Other people with other ailments get there quicker than him. Uh, and uh, Jesus uh, then heals him. Uh, what's going on there? Why is he trying to get to the water? Well, uh, in later manuscripts, there's this little explanation. Uh, at a certain hour, an angel would come down, presumably invisibly, and trouble the water, implying that what was really going on was there were just uh, the bubbles in the water occasionally from some... Uh, you know, a subterranean gas leak thing or whatever. And the first one in would get healed. Well, probably something like that is at the root of it. But apparently the evangelist simply took it for granted. He figured you'd know what the pool of Bethsaida was and how it worked. Well, some scribe uh, probably figured, you know, uh, maybe readers will not know that. I, I better put a little note in the margin uh, to to explain it. He wasn't trying to put it into the text. He's, it's just like a footnote in a reference Bible. But uh, when this copy that he made wore out some years later, uh, then the, the next guy uh, who was copying from it came up to this point and said, oh, look at this in the margin. I bet the, the previous scribe 
uh, accidentally omitted this from the text. And when he proofread it, realized, oh my gosh, look what I've done. And uh, he couldn't start over again. The materials were pretty expensive. So he just wrote what he had omitted uh, in the margin. And um, uh, so that's what the subsequent scribe thought, right? So in his copy, he just puts it right into the text, uh, now that uh, that's very easy to to imagine, and it sure explains the the manuscript evidence because the earliest copies of John do not have that, uh, and uh, so it it appears that uh, that uh, in general, at least sometimes, scribes didn't know what to make of a marginal gloss, as it's called, a little explanatory note, or thought they did, but they were wrong, and uh, wow up putting these explanatory notes in there. Bultmann comes up with a couple of them from Romans that look like somebody's trying to explain the text to do the next uh, um, scribe a, a favor. Uh, and uh, so that's how that would have happened. It's not at all far-fetched. That makes an awful lot of sense. In fact, something like that had to be going on to explain the manuscript evidence. Okay, I look forward to more of your questions, Julian the Agnostate. Here's one from an old pal of the Bible geeks, Dr. Barton. He says, I am currently reading Dr. Michael S. Heiser's new book, Reversing Hermon, H-E-R-M-O-N, uh, Enoch, The Watchers, and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. As you might expect, with me reading a book from an evangelical scholar, it has me bouncing between evangelical, dolt, boring, and I never noticed that before. A case in point is his analysis of the meaning of 1 Corinthians 11.10. By the way, I, I, I just must say, I like what you're saying there, uh, Dr. Barton. That is also often my reaction, and I, I think it says something good that you're, uh, you're uh, not unwilling to, find, to learn from, to be taught by people whose arguments you don't always agree with or whose general approach you're skeptical about. I, I certainly read books I know do not fit uh, my viewpoint because, in fact, all the more important because they're different uh, – their different filter may uh, allow them to see things that I don't, and I want to learn them. Okay, uh, what does 1 Corinthians 11.10 say? That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. By the way, it doesn't even say a symbol of in the Greek. It just says a wife ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Why because of the angels? In a nutshell, Heiser ties it to the Enochian—nut, I guess is not supposed to have a double meaning. Uh, Heiser ties it to the Enochian expansion of Genesis 6-1, when the sons of the Elohim descended and came in to the daughters of the men. The the Genesis passage is very succinct and implies that this was a perversion of the natural order, but he wove together wove it together with fragments of earlier tales that actually stated that the heroes of old had divine blood. Right, definitely. Um, First Enoch makes the very clear presentation that this was a perversion of the natural order and that much of the evil in men came from that intermingling. Of course, that's what the um, uh, 
Genesis redactor thought too, right? He's saying, what the heck? Suddenly the earth is uh, filled with violence and evil. Where the heck did it come from? Hey, I got this story over here about uh, intercourse between uh, alien angels and humans. Okay, I guess they infected us with evil. In this case, the epistles, Paul and whoever, made other references to First Enoch that showed they were strong believers that the Nephilim were the source of most of the evil in the world. God got rid of the first wave of the men of renown with the flood, and the second wave of Rephaim with Joshua's conquest of Canaan. You know, they're the guys that... Uh, Moses' spies were afraid of. Yeah, we look like grasshoppers next to these guys. Uh, Paul, quote-unquote, sought to prevent another wave of evil by making Christian women less attractive to any angels that might see them praying and seek to come into their tents. The head coverings were to discover... Sheesh, read, learn to read, Price. The head coverings were to disguise their long and very sexy hair. That was Heiser's contention, and I agree that he's probably correct in it. So do I, because I said this in an article some years ago called Amorous Archons in Eden and Corinth. But anyway, uh, however, he missed a couple of very interesting implications that result from this proposal. The first is in reference to 1 Corinthians 11.5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Note that the author of First Corinthians is very specific here. He's not speaking of a woman's long hair in public, uh, like, you know, walking down the street. Uh, his concern is exposed long hair in prayer and prophecy. In light of what we know of the early church, prophecy and speaking in tongues were aspects of trance behavior. The worshipers were seeking to be filled by the Pneumahagios, Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit was also often perceived as angels, this meant that women who were seeking to be filled by the Holy Spirit were inviting angels to come into them. Sort of like the Loa in voodoo possession ceremonies. Uh, furthermore, that meant that if there were malevolent arcas and exousias, principalities and powers, nearby, then they might seek to come into that woman before a holy spirit and produce corrupt offspring. Hence, the head covering was a disguise to protect the women and the world. Yeah, I, I argue this too, though I don't really spin it out to the point where the writer is actually worrying that Nephilim will be the result, but what the heck, it's pretty wacky anyway. He's at least talking about some kind of encounter with an incubus or something, right? Um, but there, Dr. Barton continues and probably wishes I'd uh, shut the heck up, uh, but there were two aspects to the Nephilim's corruption of mankind. It wasn't just the sexual corruption and the resulting offspring, it was also the imparting of forbidden knowledge. Mankind has always sought to obtain additional knowledge from spiritual sources. Indeed, this is a foundation of pretty much every religion. First Enoch, and I believe the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, were 
tales of people who sought after such knowledge and the consequences. Since the comment about women wearing head coverings in worship referred to the sexual corruption, did the author of 1 Corinthians make reference to knowledge corruption? I believe that it is possible that we find one in an alternate reading of 1 Corinthians 6.9. Let me just pause and butt in. Uh, Of course, that could well be, because it might refer to the need, as 1 John says, to discern the spirits, because uh, if you had the wrong kind, you'd get false prophecies, which would be false supposed knowledge, right? Okay, 1 Corinthians 6.9. Do not be deceived, not by the fornicators, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the malakoi, nor the arsenokoitai. None of those folks will enter the kingdom of heaven. I previously made the argument that malakoi, at least in this text, is a Greek loan word from the Aramaic malak, or angel, messenger. Thus, like Malachi, my messenger. Uh, thus, malakoi are not soft ones, as most um, translated, uh, but angel lovers. Such, wouldn't it be just angels? Uh, such a such a word would refer to men who sought forbidden knowledge from angels. It might also refer, especially in light of 1 Corinthians 11.10, to women who sought the possessive embrace of bad boy angels. However, I do not believe this latter is likely, as it would imply a sexual rather than knowledge corruption. If one examples this a little closer, and if one accepts my definition of malakoi, then one can see that the list fluctuates between sexual knowledge and knowledge corruption. I'm sorry, sexual corruption and knowledge corruption. Okay, the list fornicators, well, that sexual idolaters, that has to do with knowledge, you know, believing that uh, some god exists that doesn't. Adulterers, sexual. Malakoi would then be knowledge-oriented. Arsenokoitai, who knows? To be fair, it is possible that the author intended for idolaters to be a sexual corruption, ritual orgies, temple prostitutes, etc. In that case, the whole list is probably one of sexual corruption, but I like the literary and theological sophistication of including both forms of corruption of the same list. Any further thoughts or inspirations? Well, a little bit more. Um, notice the the discussion starts out with Adam and Eve and how uh, the woman, though the man was made uh, for God, the woman was made for man, and uh, she should have the the man's authority on her head, which probably does imply the veil. Uh, and uh, because, and then he goes into this thing about uh, uh, being deceived, and because of the angels, I think packed into that is the notion that uh, Eve was naked in the garden. And according to a Midrashic view, we also find in the Nagamati texts, uh, she was then raped by the malevolent angels, and Cain, the murderer, was the result. And because uh, in Second Corinthians, we got a reference to uh, 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 Eve being deceived and seduced. 
And in First John, we have the mention of Cain being the son or begotten of uh, the evil one. And so this was current in New Testament times. And so uh, he's saying, that just as Eve was naked and this attracted the angels, hubba, hubba, uh, the same could happen here. This seems like a crazy, far-fetched argument from Scripture, but look at the other arguments in the context. They're pretty lame, too. So I, I, uh, I, my only difference, really, from this would be to say that it may be just a kind of a wacky scriptural precedence argument uh, f- when when the author has nothing really convincing to say and that he doesn't actually entertain the possibility of trysts or, or rape by evil angels, but who knows? I mean, these people did believe in all kinds of wacky stuff, right? We don't want to modernize them. I believe I have an essay included in um, the, I guess, soon forthcoming book from Pitchstone Press, uh, um, Atheism and Faithism, a bunch of my essays on different topics. I also deal with this in uh, the New Testament volume upcoming of Holy Fable, and I uh, believe I also explain it a bit in... um, in, uh, what the heck is it, uh, The Amazing Colossal Apostle. Also, let me recommend uh, Margaret Barker's book, The Older Testament, where she goes into uh, evidences of this belief of supernatural knowledge derived in primordial times from angels, how you can find differing understandings of this in the Bible, it was a good thing or a bad thing, depending on which writer you read. Uh, What a fascinating book, The Older Testament. Okay, Um, there are other books with that title, but this is Margaret Barker's. Okay, Okay, here's a follow-up. Uh, from another time, uh, from Dr. Barton. I realize that some sections of the New Testament, especially Revelation, speak of eternal torment for some beings. First Enoch makes it very clear that the Nephilim, the Watchers, will be punished eternally. I also realize that different parts of the New Testament came from different theological schools. My question regards the attitude toward eternal punishment for the spirits in prison, 1 Peter 3.19, and the angels that sinned, 2 Peter 2.4. And looking over First and Second Peter, I see mention of these entities being bound until the time of judgment. If the authors of First and Second Peter mentioned that any punishment would be eternal, uh, I missed it. Honestly, I didn't look very hard. Doesn't it say bound in eternal chains or something like that. Uh, I uh, was thinking of your description of universal salvation on, I assume, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and that he died for all, uh, therefore all died, and so on, and perhaps similar passages. 
1 Timothy 4.10 spoke of the Savior of all men, so it is possible that men was assumed in 2 Corinthians, but I'm not sure. Later on, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the author speaks of, uh, if any man be in Christ, then he, he is a new creation, kathesis. Colossians 1.23 speaks of the gospel preached, Caruso, to every creature, Ketisis, which is under heaven. And 1 Peter 3.19 spoke of Jesus going and preaching, Caruso, like the charisma, the gospel preaching, uh, unto the, the spirits in prison, uh, who were presumably the watchers of First Enoch and possibly some of those who have died. Since all created, ketizo, things that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, were created by him, Colossians 1.16, I have to wonder if, for some of the epistle writers, universal salvation was offered every creature, whether watcher, dead sinner, or living woman. Um, yeah, I think that's what Colossians, a Gnostic text, does envision. Uh, unlike the epistle of the Hebrews, it is not angels that he helps, but the sons of men. Well, I think the author of Colossians, you know, it is angels he helps as well as, uh, as everybody else. Oh, uh, by the way, I go along with uh, Edgar Goodspeed's, no, no, I guess it was Rendell Harris, uh, who said that uh, uh, the, um, that, that, uh, first Peter does not say that, uh, he, that Jesus went in the spirit to preach to the disobedient spirits from Noah's days. That is, uh, a misreading of the, uh, Greek text, which of course originally had no spaces between words. Uh, first Peter starts out saying, he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And uh, we usually read it, um, in which he went to preach to the spirits in prison. But uh, Harris pointed out that no, uh, in which, in Hokai, in which also uh, is probably a misreading of the same letters that should be read as Enoch. Uh, went to preach to the spirits in prison. That's got to be correct. Um, and of course, uh, if he's referring to First Enoch, it didn't do any good, right? He made proclamation uh, that uh, he, he was he was asked to go intercede on their behalf, and he did. And uh, God said, uh, "Tell him uh, tough luck." Okay, sorry, uh, back to Dr. Barton. I know that you probably haven't had the time to investigate different views of salvation and eternal punishment in the New Testament, but from what you can remember, do you think that at least some of the authors believed that Jesus' death provided salvation for every creation? Um, yeah, yeah, Colossians certainly has to mean that, and even the business in uh, Romans, uh, or is it 8, um, or is it 10? I always get them mixed up. On this, uh, the, the whole creation is on tiptoe waiting for redemption. Uh, it'd be a little odd if that didn't refer to, uh, to people, including, and not just lemurs and zebras and stuff. Also, uh, in many have pointed out that uh, when it says, 
that um, just as in Adam all die, this is 1 Corinthians 15, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Uh, if that doesn't imply universal salvation, I, I, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what words mean. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, when it goes on to say, but each in his proper order, first Christ, then it is coming those who belong to him. Well, in the context, I'd have to assume that means everybody. Uh, doesn't say anything about anybody being damned. Yeah, Dr. Barton, I can't help but think that some of these authors must have asked the question, could a perfect and eternal God have created an evil so great that even he couldn't save it or save from it? Besides a profundity of unsaved creations, suffering eternally or erased without being saved would seem to raise questions about the omni-nature of such a God. Yeah, it had to to occur to them, because eventually you start getting into these ridiculous questions uh, that Calvinism raised. I mean, it, it's not a ridiculous question. I, I guess I mean uh, far-fetched, bizarre answers uh, if that's not the case. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus die for everybody? And you're saying it didn't work? That only some were saved? Well, then you're saying Jesus was like Jonah Salk. He, he created uh, a, a remedy, but uh, he didn't actually heal those people or prevent uh, um, uh, polio. He just made it possible. Is that all Jesus did? He introduced a new gimmick of salvation, like John the Baptist offering a baptism for remission of sins? Or did Jesus actually save everybody? Well, the Universalists figured, okay, he died to save everybody, and it worked. Right? His word shall not return to him void. Uh, but then Calvinists said, well, wait a minute. Uh, since not everybody is going to be saved, some are even eternally predestined to be damned, uh, what sense does it make for Jesus to have wasted some of his precious blood dying for these reprobates who uh, couldn't help anyway? Uh, well, I guess he just died for the elect. Uh, wait a minute, uh, excuse me, uh, what about uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? The, the incredibly lame Calvinist response is, uh, well, uh, in passages like that, the world uh, means the elect. Get out of here, come on. Uh, I, I, you just uh, spin, doctor, forget it, I'm unworthy of serious attention. Uh, the glorious doctrine of the limited atonement, which, by the way, I'm not hanging on Calvin. He never said such a ridiculous thing. Uh, he, he said that God weeds out the elect from the reprobate during the preaching of the gospel. That's where the wheat and the tares are separated. The effectual call goes out to those who can hear it because they're among the elect. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, uh, the reason you don't hear my voice is you're not part of my flock. He doesn't say you're not part of my flock because you can't hear me. He's saying, you know, my what I'm saying falls on deaf ears because you're not already members of my flock. That's a much better Calvinist uh, verse to appeal to. Okay, uh, this is Charles Power again. 
I'm having a fairly heated exchange with a fervent adherent of the faith into which I was born, Roman Catholicism. Oh, you don't have to be a six-footer. You don't have to have a great brain. You don't have to have any clothes on. You're a Catholic as soon as Dad came. Anyway, your views on a couple of the questions we're arguing probably won't matter to him, but I'd be interested whether you find my conclusions reasonable. Perhaps you could take this up as the Bible geek. First, there's the matter of the relations between Paul and the pillars. You know, James, John, Peter, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Larry, Moe, and Curly, whichever they were. Uh, my uh, interpretation of the first chapter of Galatians has long been that Paul was denying that his gospel depended on anything he learned from the pillars or any other source than his revelation from Christ himself. Um, yeah, I don't think he was saying he want, wanted permission. He, he wanted recognition. Uh, it seems obvious to me that after getting the revelation, his journey to Arabia for three years represents the start of his ministry. My stupid friend, I'm sorry, he doesn't say stupid friend. Uh, my friend does not see this from the text and <laughs> and maintains that we really don't know what Paul was doing. I'm guessing it was sandcastles, uh, and that it is reasonable to suppose that Paul's active ministry started after his meeting with the pillars, that is, when he came to Jerusalem three years after his revelation for the two weeks with Peter, during which he seems to have briefly met James. To me, this is precisely what Paul was denying, showing no small contempt for Pete, whom he denounces specifically in the following chapter as a stumble bum. Uh, who really doesn't understand the message of the uh, Savior even during Jesus' life, a message seen in various bits of the Gospels, whose understanding of Christ's message is, if anything, markedly inferior to his own. Does this seem right to you? Um, okay, let me pause there. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's uh, saying that he wanted their approval and and it's possible it means that uh, he wanted to get that he regarded them as an authority whom he had to consult because he says lest i was running in vain uh, and, and so you can read it that way uh, and um, and the issue apparently was not the nature of christ it wasn't christology uh, it was rather do Gentile converts from paganism have to be circumcised and keep the kosher laws? Excuse me. The business about consulting them does seem to imply that he figured he would have to yield to what uh, the the pillar apostles said. But on the other hand, uh, he um, the way he ends the thing, whoever he was, I mean, this is really a textual mess, Um but just reading it as, as if a single guy wrote it, and it was the historical Paul, um, he goes on to, to he, he implies that they gave him their approval, right? The, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand, the, the secret handshake of fellowship, uh, and only laid on me this one proviso, that I, we should remember the poor, which I was only too happy to do. 
what is that all about? Well, of course, it's taking the collection among the far more numerous Gentiles to support the poor, the ebionim uh, of the Jerusalem church. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean relief. It might. I mean, if you plug in uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, which maybe you should do, maybe you shouldn't, uh, which has them cash in their possessions and put the money into a common fund uh, and uh, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Uh, and you know what happens in socialist uh, societies. Take a look at Venezuela. And that's why they needed the bucks, maybe. But really the point is, it, I think it's like tribute uh, from a vassal to a lord. Uh, and from whom do the kings of the earth exact tribute, Jesus asks Peter? From their sons or from foreigners? And uh, so it's a way of saying, all right, do it your way, but uh, we want a piece of the action. Uh, and uh, I uh, think that that is really what's going on. So they give him their approval, which seems to me not saying we will endorse your doctrine, but we'll, we will give our recognition to your non-Torah ministry uh, if you will uh, have these people pay tribute to, to Jerusalem as the capital of Christianity. And then what happens when um, James sends representatives, well, when, he, when first uh, Cephas comes, presumably Peter, though we're going to come up to that question in, uh, in a bit. When, when James sends observers to Antioch, a mixed congregation with uh, Jewish and pagan or Gentile ex-pagan Christians together, and uh, they expect to see um, at least Jewish Christians hanging back uh, and sitting on the other at the other table in the cafeteria because they have to keep kosher and can't share the table with these uh these heathen slobs uh, and uh, and Peter though he uh held to Paul's view when he first got there he didn't care who he uh, ate with right think of the acts 10 thing if that's any clue as to what Peter really thought uh, and then once James's observers came, uh, Barnabas and Peter and the others said, uh, I don't want to get into trouble here. Uh, see you guys later. Enjoy the dessert. And Paul says, wait a minute. And it's obvious he considers the um, observers from Jerusalem to um, as tantamount to breaking the agreement he had reached with the pillars, including James, in Jerusalem. According to that, they shouldn't have had these scruples. They shouldn't be relegating the um, the, the Gentile converts to second-class citizenship, though I would suggest that's what's implied already in the fundraising proviso. Uh, so, um, uh, you, you can see how F.C. Bauer said that uh, this sounds more than a little like Simon Magus uh, asking 
Peter, if he can sell him apostolic prerogatives like uh, conveying the Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, that's probably another version of this same business. Paul buying or trying to buy the recognition of the um, of the uh, pillars. I, I think Bauer was right, of course. Um. So Galatians does present uh, Cephas as not getting it right. Okay, uh, Charles says, Then I was surprised to find that my friend believes that universal education, including girls in the three R's, was available to Galileans. I go with Bart Ehrman's words in his book Forgery that uh, is this not forged, right? You mean forgery and counterforgery? Uh, kind of a big brother to the earlier forged book. That, by, that, by the way, that's one of my favorite Bart Ehrman books. I, I love the orthodox corruption of scripture. Uh, and, uh, oh boy, the one about oral tradition I'm blanking out on. And uh, forgery and counterforgery, really great stuff. Um, that, uh, okay, uh, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this word, uh, this, this sentence. I go with Bart Ehrman's words in his book, Forgery, that literacy never escaped the countable on one hand percentage figures during ancient times. We're used to thinking of Jews as particularly learned compared to other people, but, uh, What's the matter? I can't scroll here. Uh, okay, other peoples. But this stereotype may be less applicable to the first than to the 21st century. My friend brings up the fact that Peter and other disciples were big business fishermen and thus must have been able to write contracts. I find this completely crazy, and indeed I wonder whether Peter and company were able to perform simple arithmetic operations. Certainly he could count, but would he, for instance, be able to see one pile of 43 fish and another of 28, and be able to conclude simply from knowing those two numbers that a pile combining those piles would total 71? I'm not sure I would. Uh, I suspect he would just have to recount, even if we consider that uh, such operations can be done in the head. Actually, I find that young people these days can be awfully fast on the draw for their calculator, even in matters this simple. I tell you, I, I just am uh, filled with irrelevant comments here, but let me share a couple of them. Uh, the, uh, I, I think that uh, the counting is... Um, Probably. You might be underestimating that. Remember in John uh, 21, we have uh, the assumption that um, the disciples could count the huge number of fish. I, I know you're saying, well, adding's a different story, but I kind of doubt that. But it, it, is, it doesn't claim this. It's taken for granted. It's uh, very similar, right? The reader is going to say, oh, of course. And uh, I, so I'm, I'm not so sure about innumeracy, uh, but um, the notion that Galilean Jews were educated uh, is, is sort of questionable. I know in Acts, it says, again, without it being controversial that the Sanhedrin took note of the eloquence of Peter and the others because uh, they said, geez, these guys are not learned. 
they're not educated. But again, that you can't really push that because the point would be that they shouldn't know rhetoric like this. And of course, Luke says, well, they don't, uh, buddy. It's, it's because um, of what Jesus said, when you stand before councils, uh, don't worry about what you're going to say, because in that hour, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And that, that's what's uh, going on there, right? That's what uh, Acts is trying to picture. But it does seem improbable that, for instance, Peter could really have been the author of First or Second Peter. There's just—it's just impossible to imagine that this guy would uh, would have that kind of command of Greek. Uh, and uh, I, I do not uh, know all the evidence that is marshaled on this question. But uh, there are different opinions on how literate Galileans would have been. Uh, that's true. But I, I think Bart is, is most likely right. Uh, that's uh, that would be. Uh, I don't think you could assume, uh, you know, good universal education and literacy uh, uh, thing uh, going on there. I mean, even in the 19th century, Baha'u'llah, one of the founders of the Baha'i faith, uh, he made it one of the goals of his revelation that there should be universal education. I mean, there wasn't in the general area even that late in the day, right? I wrote a, a gospel for the Unification Church once, uh, published in their journal, and uh, in it I have this story I kind of like, uh, where uh, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the synagogue one day after service, and they and Jesus notices a guy that seems to be upset, and he says, uh, you know what what's the matter? And the man says, I can't help but think that the 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 scribes are adding to the text I, I it seems to me they're you know corrupting it and jesus says well any uh layman yeah any anybody can volunteer and be the reader why don't you do it sometimes i never learned to read and so jesus lays hands on him and uh, miraculously he is literate that's uh, a kind of a gospel story i'd like to read anyway um and uh, what about the, uh... oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the thing with the calculators, why bother learning math? Oh, boy, Plato would be turning over in his grave at that one. This reminds me of the really great story of when Thoth um, approaches, uh, who was it, Amun-Ra? Uh, with uh, this new invention, you say, hey, Chief, I got this great gimmick. It's called writing. Uh, now people will not have to fear that they're they're going to forget everything. They can write it down, uh, and so it'll be an a an aid to failing memory. And uh, Amon Ra says to him, "Are you kidding? It's just the opposite. Uh, this is going to ruin their memories because they won't even have to try to remember anything." Uh, well, that's kind of the way it is with uh, the uh, the calculators. Right? Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, back to Charles. I'm reminded of Ursula K. Le Guin, <laughs> a Lovecraft hater, I might point out. Her early story, The Masters, in which one of those post-apocalyptic societies, what do you mean, like Detroit, uh, which ban advanced knowledge, burns a guy at the stake for trying to introduce Arabic numbers as being easier for calculation than Roman numerals. I don't know how I'd manage my arithmetic with a system less regular than Arabic numbers. 
which, by the way, the Arabs got from the people of India, whom they were plundering and murdering, but that's another matter. Yeah, oh boy, interesting. Yeah, man. Yeah, arithmetic is beyond me. Okay, Dr. Barton again. You know, if you think uh, that uh, some of these guys are hogging the Bible geek, uh, well, that's only because you're not sending in as many questions, right? I, uh, I welcome any number of questions from any number of listeners. In episode 17009, whatever that was, uh, Junior Bible Geek Jose provided his take on the theory that the historic Jesus of Paul and others originated in tales or exegeses of a Jesus that actually had been the son of David. Literally and directly, right? I would like to suggest an even more radical, uh, yet at the same time traditional historic Jesus. Paul and Muhammad were working from the same source tradition. Mary, mother of Jesus, was Miriam, sister of Moses, and Jesus was Joshua, the Old Testament Joshua, right? Obviously, there are issues to be resolved here, such as Joshua being the nephew of Moses and how Joshua could be of the house of David, but it is possible that there is a now-lost tradition that accounts for these discrepancies, one that had Paul and later, one that Paul and later Muhammad had access to. Now, what, what's Dr. Barton referring to? It uh, does refer to, in the Quran, it refers to... Um, to uh, Mary as the uh, the daughter of uh, Imran or whatever, uh, it, it does imply that uh, Muhammad or whoever wrote this or spoke it thought that uh, they were contemporaries. Okay, I know that there is a deathbed scene for Joshua, but I also know that there's some confusion on how much of the conquest of Canaan had occurred by the time of his death. Perhaps there were some features to his death, such as those of Moses and Enoch, uh, that would suggest the possibility of Joshua's return. It's probably nothing, but I'll have to look into this a little. I know that you're not as acquainted with Old Testament minutia, but can you think of any New Testament clues that might support this theory? Um, well, let me answer it this way. You know, there is the there is this precedent, or let me say parallel in New Testament times, to the idea of a Joshua redivivus, a return of Joshua as a messianic figure, or at least people in the same tradition who did thing who would do things to repeat the miracles of Joshua, um, Theudas, um Let's see. Um, getting mixed up. Theudas and the Egyptian, whom uh, Luke and, uh, well, I should say, whom Acts and Josephus both mentioned. One of them said that to his followers he would prove his messianic status by causing the city walls of Jerusalem to fall, just as Joshua caused those of uh, Jericho to fall, right? Um, and the other said that he would dry up the Jordan, just as Joshua did. And this might have something to do with Samaritan eschatology, because um, some Samaritans thought that when uh, the Moses of Deuteronomy said that uh, Yahweh will raise up a 
prophet like me, and you'd better take heart uh, what he take to heart what he says, or you'll be cut off from the people. They uh, many Samaritans thought. Well, he's not talking about the remote future. He means his successor, Joshua, will be a prophet like him. And indeed, later we read that Joshua made a code of laws for them. Isn't isn't it kind of a mosaic uh, shtick? Uh, And just as Moses caused the uh, Sea of Reeds to dry up, so did Joshua cause the Jordan to dry up and so on. Uh, And so some of them said, look, don't look in the future. It's already happened. That was Joshua. But other Samaritans, this is a missing piece of the puzzle, but it's a real tempting gap to fill. Others uh, may have thought, oh, he is talking about the remote, possibly remote future, but he is also talking about Joshua, that Joshua will come again. Later still, some Samaritans we know uh, thought that Moses would return at the end of the age, that he would be the Taheb, the revealer. And uh, so right in the middle there, you can well imagine that though this is not directly attested, let me point out, uh, that some thought that Joshua would return at the end of the age, and that Theudas and the Egyptian were were uh, trading on that assumption. And then that raises the question of a Joshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, has something to do with that, uh, that it wasn't really a name, that it was kind of a job description. One last thing, it is possible that when you look at Joshua's patronymic, the son of Nun, N-U-N, that, uh, oh boy, who said this? I can't think of the name offhand. Um, Saul Levin? Uh, he, He suggested that this he he gave reasons for this that nun may be a, a greek rendering of of the tetragrammaton yahweh uh if, that we find in the the septuagint and so that uh, joshua could have been understood as the son of yahweh uh in the greek old testament well uh, you know that could uh, that sounds kind of jesusy and uh those might be some uh, some bits to toss into the mulligan stew here uh and uh you, you know, of course, you're feeding into the, the um, theories of the late 19th, early 20th century mythicists, I believe, like um, uh, William Benjamin Smith. I think maybe he was one of the ones that argued that there was a Joshua cult before Christianity and that they believed in a divine savior, Joshua, and that this was uh, what became historicized as Jesus uh, of Nazareth. So that is certainly well worth looking into, Doc. Um, who do we have up next? Uh, uh, from Lachlan Christiante, and yes, it is a pun on Antichrist, as he's confirmed me. Uh, vampire predator. Not too many people can boast that credential. Um, okay, uh, I read Matthew first because I was listening to King James on CD with James Earl Jones narrating. Uh, oh boy, that, that ought to be good. Uh, I love that guy's voice. Uh, 
I was just thinking the other day about this. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these novelty speaker phones. I probably don't make them anymore, but I was, I think my uh, brother-in-law Scott gave me one of these once. I think I'm pretty sure it was he. Uh, and, and it was a Darth Vader speaker phone. And there's old Darth standing there and glorious pr- uh, plastic about 10 inches high on the base of this speaker phone. Well, when Carol and I moved into our, oh, I guess it was the, uh, the parsonage in uh, uh, Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, this we we hadn't uh, unpacked hardly anything. It was moving day. I remember Gary and Jen Myers came to visit a great fantasy author couple, and uh, it was we had pizza on the floor because there's no furniture, and um, so this was the only phone we had unpacked, and I had it plugged in. And this was at the time that James Earl Jones was uh, doing commercials and stuff for AT and T. So I uh, had to call somebody suddenly, and I went to directory assistance, and I said, give me the number for so-and-so, and it did. And then after that, the the voice of James Earl Jones came on, thank you for using AT&T. And I thought, oh, man, this is just great. I got Darth Vader thanking me for using AT&T. What fun. Sorry about that. Uh, okay. Um, Okay, to enjoy the story, I accepted the premise that appeared to be laid out that this guy is the mo- Jesus is the most rhetorically gifted man of his age. You know, give it the Sermon on the Mount, etc. Similar to how I would view Christopher Hitchens, or perhaps a better example would be someone very knowledgeable on the Bible, able to able to give interpretations that others haven't heard of, and more than willing to teach others what he knows, such as oh, sorry, as our own beloved. Bible geek. Sorry, I didn't realize where that was going. Uh, So what gives with the trial? Now, I admit to being a major couch potato as a child and probably watched much more Perry Mason than most people my age. And now that's a miracle, right? I remain uh, astonished that anybody can stay awake watching that show. Uh, I thought so uh, when I was a young lad, and I see it right before the Twilight Zone comes on me TV a little bit, of, and I think, good God, who could care what happens on this thing? Sorry, um, Perry Mason. Uh, yeah, and I know it's probably a mistake to bring my 20th century experiences into a first or second century text, but here's this guy who goes around preaching and astounding people with his skill, but as soon as he's arrested, he doesn't use his silver tongue to defend himself, but instead is strangely quiet. Originally, I thought maybe it was because he was trying to make things go as fast as possible because he was worried about Judas feeling too guilty and killing himself, uh, which he appears to have done in the gospel stories. Although if you harmonize the hanging and the belly cutting, then what you have is clearly a murder badly staged as a suicide. But Bart Ehrman gave me another idea. Q and Thomas don't have a passion narrative. They're a list of sayings. So maybe the last temptation has more truth than the passion when it comes to this Christ guy. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, a historical figure. 
He had some moral insights, maybe some metaphysics, maybe a unique interpretation of the Bible, but he wasn't crucified. Um, not just not killed, but not even arrested. He died of old age or the flu or something like that, but wasn't a revolutionary. That would explain why Q doesn't have any details on the arrest, trial, and crucifixion, and why Mark and Matthew don't have any witty dialogue. Does this hold any water? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as I always have to say, it's speculative, but then what ain't, right? Um, this is, uh, I've, I've often thought this in connection with the possible parallel to Philostratus's life of Apollonius of Tyana, where it says, of his death, many things are recorded or rumored, I think it says. Uh, and, uh, but here's one. And it says that uh, he went into a temple uh, I forget which one, and uh, the doors closed by themselves, and uh, a voice was heard from outside, the voice was heard from inside, heavenly voices saying, come up hither, come up hither, and when they got the doors open, he was gone. Uh, but it, it's, it plainly states there were various stories, and, and that kind of implies <laughs> nobody knows what happened to him. Uh, not because there was this miracle of his disappearance necessarily, but just because nobody knew. Kind of like in Deuteronomy, where it says nobody knows where Moses was buried to this day, and later Jews took that as a hint that that's because he wasn't buried, he was taken up to heaven. But the the um, implication might be that there was nothing special about his death, and people filled in the gap. Uh, and the same thing could be true of Jesus. And Burton Mack talks about this. He enlists Jonathan Z. Smith uh, on the Attis cult. I I'm very suspicious of anything Smith says about the, the mystery religions, to tell you the truth, even though I, I enjoy much of his work, and he certainly was a, was a brilliant man. But uh, at, at any rate, he, he does point out how using Attis as an example, that there were different forms of this religion all over the place, and they had different myths uh, about him. Some involved a resurrection, some did not. Uh, and uh, it sort of depended on, like the myth is a uh, script for a ritual, and it kind of depended on the needs of each particular local group as to how their myths were shaped. And um, Burton Mack says, uh, bingo, that's uh, that might well be the case with Jesus. And if so, exactly as you're saying, uh, the the reason Q uh, has no evidence of of knowing a thing about the death of Jesus, much less the resurrection, is maybe they didn't know. Maybe nobody really knew. Uh, and uh, you cannot assume that all Christians believe the same thing. Apologists like to say that, but they're begging the question. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, we know all Christians believe what we believe. You certainly don't know that. Oh, just because uh, Q doesn't mention, or Thomas doesn't mention the death, that doesn't mean they didn't believe in it. Uh, well, that's true, but it certainly doesn't mean they did, right? Uh, where do you get that? Uh, and uh, so, anyway, 
Uh, yes, yeah, so I think you might well be right that the uh, the that that Q might imply. Yeah, here was at least one group that uh, understood Jesus as a teacher, didn't know what happened to him, maybe didn't care what happened to him. Doesn't really matter. Yeah. Okay, here's a question from Abdel Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. This is a trivial theological question, but try as I might, I can't come up with a good rationalization which doesn't involve some prevarication or deception on God's part. It's hard for me to express abstract concepts even within my narrow specialization, software, and my thought process led me to a second question that I think needs to be addressed first. So please bear with me, and if you can state what I'm trying to ask more succinctly, please do. The first question is this, how did Jesus get his instructions? The second question, which I think is more fundamental, is how did God ensure that Jesus was a suitable vessel for his ministry? Basically, how did Jesus survive to begin his ministry without sinning? Hebrews says he was uh, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Chapter 4, verse 15. Had he sinned, he would not have been without blemish or defect. First Peter one nineteen. He survived Satan's trials in Matthew and Luke. His sinless nature seems to be a necessary part of Christian theology. By the way, my... Uh, suspicion is that that originally the point was simply Jesus was innocent. Uh, he, he hadn't uh, fomented uh, revolt. And uh, th so he was he was framed and it was a miscarriage of justice. And that once somebody decided to think of Jesus' death as that of a sacrificial lamb, they figured, OK, he was absolutely pure and uh, morally pure and pure every way you can think of. Okay, Now, I understand that the weirdness of the virgin birth in Mary's immaculate conception disconnect him from original sin, but all men have a propensity to sin, and Jesus was fully human. So how did God either know that he would remain sinless or ensure the same? Any answer that begins, because he was God, or divine, or aware of his purpose, betrays his non-humanity. And if you take away his desire to sin, or make him unable to choose sin, then he was not tempted in all ways as we are. God could know that he would begin life perfectly righteous, unlike the rest of us miscreants. Uh, yet unless he was whispering in Jesus' ear constantly, he was taking a huge risk that he might not remain that way, and whispering in his ear would be cheating. Jesus would have a constant reminder to stick to the straight and narrow that not the most saintly among us could ever have. Uh, by the way, uh, there were a couple of uh, thinkers, uh, including Karl Barth and Edward Irving, who founded the Catholic Apostolic Church, who both said, if he was a human, he did have a sinful nature. He was a human, so he did. Quite controversial, I might add. Though he didn't sin, didn't yield to it. Okay. The only real resolution I can see to this is to take Mark at face value. The man Jesus was righteous, forget about original sin, Mark 
didn't think that way. Presumably he had followed the law from birth, and perhaps God had waited thousands of years for such a perfect individual to walk the earth. So he infused the man Jesus with his spirit at his baptism and led him into his ministry. A less charitable take would be that God rewarded the righteous man by possessing him and getting him killed. But however you view it, it solves the problem. God didn't manipulate the fate of the man. He found a suitable vessel and then told him what he must do. Uh, In Orthodox Christology, how did God prepare Jesus for his ministry without compromising his humanity? And I'll pause here for a pontification. I don't know that anybody has ever solved this, uh, but I think... Well, even this isn't a solution, but perhaps one stab at it was the doctrine of the N-hypostatic humanity, uh, E-N-H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S, or I-C, which says, okay, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. He had two natures, human and divine. He was one person. Uh, what was the person? Was it human or divine? It was divine. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, Jesus only became a human in hypostatic union with the divine. Now, it, it seems to me that that's just a fancy way of, uh, reviving Apollinarianism or even going to to docetism of a kind, that it seemed like he was human, but really he wasn't. I think that's a fake out, but that's an attempt at it. Um, Because this is almost like the Euthyphro paradox of Socrates, right? Uh, What is, how do you know what is right? How do you define the good, the right is the good what the gods love? Okay, maybe so. But do we call it good because they happen to love it? Or do they love it because they know it is already good? This poses a huge problem, right? Um, because if it's the former, if God loving it makes it good, that's divine voluntarism, not inherently good. God just happens to like it. If tomorrow he said, okay, uh, let's shake things up. Thou shalt murder. That would be right. But then on the other hand, if God commands what is right inherently, that means that uh, God, like Zeus, had to obey superior laws. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Well, it's the same sort of thing. Was Jesus righteous because he couldn't sin? Or, or was uh, he righteous because somehow he held out and didn't sin? Uh, oh boy. Uh, I, now, maybe a Wesleyan way at this would be to say that Jesus, or Schleiermacher would have said something like this, I guess, that uh, Jesus was so God-conscious He was in him we live and move and have our being, that he was so open to God and so loved God that he simply disdained any of uh, anything that would have displeased God. Now, that's probably a better approach. Uh, But then again, you got to explain, well, why was Jesus, uh, how could Jesus be unique in this respect? But that might be the better way to go, because 
you ask, uh, what about God? Can God sin? Can God do what is morally wrong? There's a pretty good answer to that one. Uh, no, because why do we lie? Uh, why do we kill or steal or cheat? Isn't it because we are not powerful? These things are the only way we can get what we want, or we think they are anyway. Uh, yeah, well, God simply never would sin. A sin is a failure. Uh, a sin is a lack. Uh, and so uh, God would would simply never do it. It's like, could God get sick? Well, it's not a question of that, uh, given what God is supposed to be. It's not like something he could do. Uh, and it's, it's not a, a positive act, sort of like Plato says, uh, uh, the, the evil, the ugly, etc. These things are uh, deformations of the good. And I, I think that is a very good uh, answer to that one. But the problem is, you know, what Jesus says in... Uh, Matthew, I think the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Wasn't it weak in Jesus' case? If he was really a human being, bit of a problem. Okay, and what you're suggesting is a kind of a possession Christology, and uh, that that just carves up the turkey in a whole different way. Okay, and now that you've explained what it is that I'm missing, I'd like to revisit the original question. How did Jesus know what was required of him? I think the answer that would most likely satisfy orthodoxy was that he read the scriptures and understood the prophecies exactly as Matthew did. Somehow they told him he had to preach repentance and die for our sins. Obviously, there's a huge problem with that because it isn't what the prophecies say. Those that do imply Jesus' ministry can only be taken that way after the fact. Did God or an angel whisper in his ear after all? Which is how I got to wondering about question two, of course. Did he always know what to preach and to do because he was divinely instructed? That seems like cheating, exactly as it did above. We're not seeing the human side of Jesus except as a divine translator. Uh, well, you know, this... Uh, I don't know that this causes the same problem because this is no different really from saying Jesus was a prophet, uh, that he, I mean, you, theoretically you could be receiving special knowledge from God in a dream or from a voice or something like that and still be completely human. In fact, the idea of it being revealed sort of fits well with his being uh, a mere human because it implies he didn't just know it because he was God. Uh, and um, I think of the scene in The Last Temptation of Christ where Jesus is telling Judas that his plans have changed, and that's because in the middle of the night the prophet Isaiah uh, came to him and uh, unrolled the scroll of his prophecies and pointed out chapter 53. Uh, and uh, yeah, that the, the revelation that uh, Jesus would uh, uh, would get from God could be. I mean, uh, the guidance supposedly in in reading scripture and so forth. Okay. In either case, the thing that bugs me most is that he knew his great sacrifice was only a three-day nap. After a decade or more away from Christianity, I still feel uncomfortable stating it that way. But then as a Christian, I knew I was shying away from thinking about the Easter story in those terms anyway.
And yet we know he did, if Mark and Matthew are to be believed about the Son of Man rising after or in three days, or John about rebuilding the temple in three days. Now, if Jesus did not know that his death was temporary and believed that he was truly being sacrificed for all, then I would say that could be seen as a heroic act undiminished by his later resurrection. And again, Mark's passion might lead in that direction. If you overlook some of the sayings, but the sayings imply that the voices whispering in his head said, It won't be so bad, it's only a few days. Which, I'm sorry I could be very wrong, but it seems to me, diminishes the Christian message and the sacrifice of Christ. I think I can predict one of your responses to this question. Uh-oh. Cousin Zakas, at least as expounded to me by Dr. Robert M. Price, gave a credible, powerful, and poignant explanation of how Jesus learned his purpose. I haven't read the book or seen the movie. I promise to get around to it real soon now. Uh, so far, that is the only understanding of the mission of Jesus that I've heard which is momentous enough to suit the traditional Christian message. Are there others? Uh, for what it's worth, obviously, I don't accept that this is historically accurate. Even if there was a historical Jesus, I'm simply trying to understand how to understand the um, story of Christ without trivializing Christianity. May the black sun forever curse you with wisdom, Abdel Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. Well, uh, to me, Thomas Altizer... Uh, the greatest uh, theologian of the late 20th and 21st century, uh, maybe even greater than that, uh, he, in his book, The Descent into Hell, made much the same point very well when he said that uh, the notion of the resurrection really guts the whole story, that uh, the uh, descent into hell is supposed to be a real martyrdom. And uh, if you chop that off, not only does it trivialize the death of Jesus, I mean, who would rather, who would not rather uh, suffer three days, uh, well, let, let's put it this way, suffer for a few hours on the cross than uh, be uh, locked into Auschwitz? Right, I mean, uh, Jesus comes off pretty lucky in, in that case, right? Uh, and um, and then the death thing—basically, talking about being in a coma for three days. Uh, what's the big deal, right? And and Altizer said, beyond that, it's ruining the idea that that he sees of the sacred being poured out into the profane. Uh, Altheiser's theology is really fascinating, uh, and uh, he, he discusses it in a lot of books. Uh, they're my two favorites, or two of the early ones, the, uh, the Gospel of Christian Atheism and uh, The Descent into Hell. He's written many other books. Some of them are rather hard, as Second as Peter says about uh, Paul's epistles. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can misunderstand there, because this guy is not only incredibly well-versed in uh, literature and philosophy and theology, but he himself is a visionary. I mean, literally, a mystic, uh, an amazing man with an amazing combination of knowledge and experience. 
He's written an autobiography, actually some years old now, called Living the Death of God. And I would uh, recommend these three books as starters if you want to get into Altizer, which is certainly uh, should do. Uh, what, what a great, great theologian. Um, and uh, he says that um, you're just clipping the wings of the whole thing that way. And again, how much of a sacrifice is it? I mean, a huge pain in the neck, but uh, the, the sacrifice of his life, not exactly. Uh, there, there is a huge problem with that, it seems to me. Um, let's see, this from Ricardus Loganius. Uh, um, here watching over the banks of the mighty Missouri River in western Iowa. I continue to listen to and be amazed by your erudition. Thank you. I seek to tread on dangerous ground. I wish to ask you a question about religion and politics. I found my political thought to be in migration. I'm not yet able to say where I land, save to say that I'm nowhere near being a Marxist progressive, but lately I have been examining libertarian thought. One of the things I notice about libertarian luminaries is that they seem to be... Uh, rather religious although they are f wait a minute. they seem to be rather religious although they are faithful to being libertarian and not wanting to push their beliefs on others as an atheist i have no issues with re with religion of this sort um uh, let me point out i uh, have uh, discovered the same thing one of my best friends is uh, john lowe uh, who is a devout Christian, I should even say a fundamentalist, at least a literalist, though a more open-minded man, friendly to any ideas you will never meet, and he's politically libertarian. A lot of people like him, luckily. Uh, not enough, though. However, I recently have been exposed to the Libertarian Christian Institute, whose website can be found at uh, libertarian Christian. I'm having a hard time reading this. It's not your fault. It's my glasses. LibertarianChristians.com. Uh, from their about page, they say, we are convinced that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. I wonder, Dr. Price, if the libertarian principle of non-aggression can be traced back to explicit Christian roots, and in your opinion, which political philosophy would Christianity be most uh, applicable to? Um, it's funny, uh, in a couple of days, I'm going to be doing a, a video presentation uh, for a Johnny Coleman seminary colloquium about the politics of Jesus, and in it I say it's impossible to know what the politics of Jesus are, partly because if there was a historical Jesus, he was living in a whole different uh, world politically than we are, but I think the best evidence would indicate that uh, SGF Brandon and uh, uh, Robert Eisler were correct in seeing Jesus as a violent revolutionary. Uh, also, um, uh, Lena Einhorn is, uh, if I understand it correctly, is is 
holds to a version of this. There, there are. I still think it's a bit more likely that uh, Jesus was purely mythical. But if there was a historical Jesus, uh, I think he would have been a character much like uh, Theudas, uh, Menachem, um, Judas of Galilee, and so on. But uh, that presupposes a revolt against a kind of an imperial system that we don't have. Uh, and uh, so I don't know that it's easy to say uh, when you say, okay, so much for Jesus, how about Christianity? Uh, it's tempting to think that the Anabaptist uh, Mennonite sort of a view of Jesus and the result being a kind of benign anarchism would fit Christianity. But then how do you determine what real Christianity is? I don't know that you can really, uh, you can get ideas from it. But ultimately, everybody trying to come up with a Christian uh, politics, I think, has to face the challenge that Reinhold Niebuhr did in his book, An Interpretation of Christian Ethics, particularly the essay, um, The Relevance of an Impossible Ethical Ideal, uh, where he says, look, uh, you, you just cannot apply, turn the other cheek, give everything you have to the poor, etc., to life in an ongoing world. Didn't work out too well for Tolstoy, for example. And uh, that, however, you don't want to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount is just a lot of fantasy. It seems to ring true morally in some way. So how can you create a, a livable, practicable version uh, of this sort of ethic? Uh, and I'm not sure how you can. Um, I, I personally tend to go to philosophy uh, and experience to come up with uh, a politics that is as noble as possible in the real world. But I don't know that, uh, I don't know how you would determine. You, you could say there are various attempts at a Christian politics. Tillich was big on Christian socialism and so forth. Uh, I wouldn't be, but I wouldn't claim to be a Christian. Okay. Uh, see, uh, Augustus Van Dusen says, I recently read, Is Lucian's On the Death of Peregrinus, a satire on Marcion by Hermann Dettering, and would like to hear your thoughts about Dettering's speculation. Well, uh, could be. Uh, that would uh, make some sense. Uh, Clifford Carrington in Australia argued that uh, Peregrinus was really Ignatius of Antioch, and both uh, opinions seem to me to be uh, speculative but possible. Uh, it's it's hard to say. Um, I guess the... the um, real center of the thing is Lucian's statement that for a while Peregrinus, the cynic philosopher, became a Christian and um, wrote documents that were esteemed scripture and he was understood as second only to the founder, Jesus. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, you know, if if he's not wildly mistaken, and he might be, then you would have to think that uh, Peregrinus 
should be popping up in, in some kind of Christian tradition, even if under another name. Right? Who would it be? It's much like the teacher of righteousness of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This must have been a major figure. Uh, is he unknown other than in the scrolls? Same sort of thing. And uh, Ignatius supposedly wrote all these epistles, and he was a martyr, and so was uh, Peregrinus, uh, and according to the story. And but uh, it would kind of fit with Paul. Uh, Peregrinus sounds a lot like Paul in the Acts of Paul. Uh, Marcion collected the Pauline epistles or started the project of writing them. Good reason to believe he wrote chapters 3 through 6 of Galatians and an original draft of Ephesians, and then others may have started adding uh, epistles of their own. But uh, it's very clever, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way. For some reason, some people do. Uh, but um, I pay close attention and uh, take very seriously anything that uh, Hermann Dettering says. In my opinion, he is the greatest contemporary New Testament scholar. Um, so if you haven't read his, uh, any of his essays that appear in the Journal of Higher Criticism, uh, you'll enjoy them. Thank you, Divine Augustus. Okay, uh, this from uh, Mr. Spock, uh, though I think he is being channeled by Cody Ro Ross Rex, if I'm reading this right. Um... I've long wondered why the figure of Jesus has had such a sway on the imaginations and emotions of so many people throughout history. I wonder if it might be because of his malleability, his dialectical ability to include opposites. I suppose the same might be said of most major religious figures. But after recently re-reading Northrop Fry's study on William Blake, Fearful Symmetry, a book I've read several times with my mouth opened in awe. It seems the figure of Sarek, of Christ, is especially plastic when it comes to the larger global culture. The contradictions are seemingly infinite. Just off the top of my head, he said to hate your father and mother, but Jehovah and Mary are revered. He both encouraged and discouraged violence. He was part man and part God, or all man and all God, or three-fourths man and one-fourth God, or whatever, depending on your denominational squabble of choice. There are too many examples to name, yet I understand that he likely didn't actually say, do, or be any of these things. Nevertheless, history has granted him a holism. Do you think he was a sort of proto-archetype that had a universality about him, in the same way that so many of the Greek gods and heroes had? Or is it much more nebulous than that? Is it more of an accident of history? Is it more because of the religio-political expediency of the early church needing to change the most crucial things in his life story and message? 
uh, were the redactions and edits uh, over the next hundred years of political turmoil so severe that somehow they made this character the most appealing character to so many billions of people and the most universally acknowledged in human history? If so, then from a literary perspective, is this the strangest thing that's ever happened? Well, there are others who have caught on, and, um, you know, I believe, was it Rousseau who said that uh, if if Jesus was the creation uh, of some author, the author must have been greater than Jesus, and then he implies might as well be considered Jesus. And then you think about Paul Tillich saying, even if we found out that his name wasn't Jesus, uh, there must have been a guy who began this whole thing, uh, first domino to fall. Um, But I would say that the reason that the creator of the Jesus Christ character would be greater than Jesus is that because there's no one creator and because of what you've said here, that uh, so many people have uh, projected their dreams and beliefs and ideals and hopes, uh, their wit and wisdom onto this character, that uh, he has become greater than any individual could be. Uh, or at least they'd be very rare. There are some others I suppose we can think of. But but that would be my guess. Um, And uh, Jesus becomes the Son of Man, uh, namely human beings in general. Um, A good example of this would be Khalil Gibran's book, Jesus the Son of Man, uh, where he writes his own gospel, uh, a fictive collection of testimonies and recollections of Jesus by people that knew him uh, well or just in passing. Uh, And it's really terrific. Uh, Same thing with um, Kazantzakis in The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, This is his personal vision. Kazantzakis lived an amazing life, a journey, a quest. Uh, He lived many lives rolled into one. And uh, Albert Schweitzer, he paints a Jesus that uh, essayed grand things, even as Schweitzer himself did. Uh, And uh, it's not to say that these elements were not at least latent in the sources, but uh, the picture of Jesus has grown as uh, he has absorbed those who have written about him. Uh, So, um, and and I think the Buddha would be an example of that. And um, I'm sure there there are other... uh, characters that are really historical composites uh, that you could name as well. So it's not that strange, but I suppose you could say Carl Jung meant something like this when he says there is a Christ archetype. And uh, that, I, he probably believed there was a historical Jesus, I don't know, but uh, I'm sorry to say I don't. But uh, I... Uh, I'm thinking that um, whether he did or not, the idea is that Christ has become an archetype or or been created on the basis of an archetype, a suitable one that is in the collective unconscious. And um, yeah, okay, well, one more uh, for today. 
another one from Augustus Van Dusen. As I'm reading the Synoptic Apocalypse, Mark 13 and Parallels, a document from the time of Bar Kokhba by Hermann Dettering. Uh, there's that Dettering again. In this article, Dettering claims that in the following verses from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 14 through 19, um, um, the phrase, when God created the world, is a refutation of the Gnostic and Marcionite belief that the Demiurge, not the Most High God and the Father of Christ, created the material world. What are your thoughts? Now, here's the passage. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing uh, where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Uh, let no one in the house, uh, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get that cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days to pregnant women and nursing mothers. Uh, pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equated again. So, Dettering is saying that uh, when God created the world, it's a refutation of the Gnostic and Marcion, I believe, that the Demiurge, not the Most High God and the Father of Christ, created the material world. I had forgotten that uh, Dettering said that. Um, so the idea is that Jesus would is, is depicted here as saying that uh, presumably his Father uh, is the creator of the world, and perhaps is even merciful in the midst of the apocalyptic disasters because he has shortened the, the allotted time. Uh, that could be, um, it would make sense. I mean, there are certainly gospel passages that at least are non-Marcionite, that, uh, you know, whether they go back to Jesus or not, who knows. Uh, there are some that sound Marcionite to me, like, you know, no one knows the Father except for the Son and any to whom the Son reveals him. But um, I don't know that non-Marcionite is, is consciously anti-Marcionite. I'd have to look at the article again. I've read it a bunch of times over the years, but you know what my memory is like these days. Um, th there are things that seem to me anti-Marcionite in the Gospels. For instance, you know, the Mark and parable of the wine and the wineskins, uh, that what a mistake to pour new wine that's still fermenting and expanding into old leather wineskins that have already held expanding fermenting wine and are now themselves stretched to the breaking point. They can't accommodate new expanding fermenting wine, wine and if you pour it in there, it's going to burst the wineskins at the same so don't do it. New wine skins for new wine. Well, uh, Matthew repeats it that way from Mark. Luke pretty much repeats it, but he adds, no one who has tasted the old wine is in any hurry to drink the new, for he says the old is better. Now that's an anti-Marcionite statement. 
right? Uh, the the um, let's not dispense with the old scripture, the old revelation uh, for the new. I mean, the old is tried and true. Uh, another anti-Marcionite one would be at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, don't go thinking that I came to abolish the scriptures, the, the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. And anybody that goes around telling you not to keep the least of these commandments, he's going to be least in the kingdom of heaven, lowest on the totem pole. But whoever says you must keep even the least of them, ah, he's, he's number one. Uh, that's an anti-Marcionite um, passage. This could be too. I'd have to look at the article again, but just the fact that he attributes the tribulation uh, or its mitigation to God does, and, and the creation more especially to God, that seems to be non-Marcionite, but again, the Gospels have materials stemming from many different sources. Okay, uh, Here's a short one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is interesting. Harrod Jansen says, I have an acquaintance that has recently gotten in trouble for praying to the Heavenly Mother rather than to a male deity in her church. I was wondering if there are instances in the New Testament that talk about or show that early Christians prayed to a goddess. Or are there other materials or evidence from early Christianity that can be used to show this? Well, there are feminist Christians that make a big deal out of Sophia, who is understood in Gnosticism as a um, as the mother of the demiurge, the the creator, and. Um, but she's like the the last. She's like number three hundred and sixty five in the uh, emanations uh, from the Godhead. She's not really God, uh, but nonetheless, she did have an important role as a venerated figure in some types of Gnosticism. Some Gnostics had uh, the Eucharistic cup and said that it was this. It represented the sufferings of Sophia. Uh, and so I, I I remember seeing the author of a the authoress of a book down in, uh, in up in Drew uh, Seminary years ago. Uh, she had generated a lot of controversy by writing a book on Sophia and how uh, Christian women are well within their rights to pray to her. So there, you know, they she might be reviving some kind of Gnostic thing. I take this as uh, relevant to something Tillich said, that religious symbols cannot be constructed artificially, like uh, you know, writers coming up with a new sitcom, uh, that uh, they have to emerge from uh, the community as conditions change and all of that. Well, at the time, I was unfriendly to the notion, saying this is clearly just some sort of an artificial propaganda creation. But now I realize, no, uh, this was emerging from women's consciousness. Uh, they felt that if I, as a woman, am the, as, am the equal of a man, there is something wrong with saying there, there is no 
female element in the Godhead. And, you know, uh, some, uh, some Jewish Christians spoke of the Holy Spirit as female, and good chapter on this in Elaine Pagel's great book, The Gnostic Gospels. Um, now, is, is, and uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, another great scholar, um, says that uh, Jesus and John the Baptist were supposed to be apostles sent by Sophia as a personified being. It could be, but I doubt it. I think it's reading too much into the passages. But uh, in Acts 17, where it says that uh, some supposed Paul to be promulgating belief in new deities for he was preaching Jesus and Anastasis. Uh, well, what does that mean exactly? It's usually translated, well, it's almost always translated as he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, some scholars admit that for the bystanders to think he was preaching new deities, plural. They must have understood Anastasis not just as the resurrection of Jesus, but as a goddess who was uh, the, the divine consort of Jesus. And I argue that they were right, that the, this, it, this is Luke trying to laugh off what some early Christians did teach that Jesus was raised from the dead by his divine consort, just as Baal was, and uh, um, Attis, and uh, Adonis, and various, and Osiris, whose uh, female consorts resurrected them. And Anastasis does mean resurrection. So it's not to say that all Christians did, but I think, and, and of course this is just an isolated clue, who knows? But it seems to me the most likely explanation has huge ramifications that some early Christians did believe in a goddess resurrection and that Mary Magdalene is a kind of a historicizing of her and that uh, when she brings ointments and spices uh, to Jesus' tomb and finds him risen from the dead, that originally this was the story of Anastasis bringing this unguent to raise Jesus from the dead, precisely as Isis and Nephthys did to raise Osiris. Uh, so I think there is some evidence, though, you know, I don't know uh, what weight you can put on that, but that's that's my uh, my guess. Ooh, let me see. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, then, uh, I guess that's it for today. I've covered a decent amount of ground, and uh, I hope uh, tomorrow perhaps to do another one and or a human Bible. There'll be a new human Bible soon in any event. Uh, thank you for joining me today on um, on the Bible Geek, and again, I will see you soon.